You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group and American National Insurance. I live in Chicago, and right about now, the leaves are falling and so are the temperatures. This makes me want to grab a glass of red, find a fire pit, and a cozy sweater. If you are looking for a wine recommendation, may I suggest the 2018 Hannah Cabernet from Sonoma County. If you prefer white wine, the 2021 Hannah Chardonnay is a great option. This female-led winery offers absolutely delicious options for your fall table. Great pairing with more savory dishes, or to share a bottle with friends. Hannah Winery brings the rich and unique terroir of Sonoma County right to your home in every glass. Cheers, everyone. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most creative and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Jason Pfeiffer. Nobody's good at something at the very beginning, so that's not what separates people. What separates people is that some people are able to tolerate being bad long enough on their way to being good. Figure out what of you could be valuable to others and then refine over time how you're delivering that value. That's when you have something. That is Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and host of the podcast Problem Solvers, which is about entrepreneurs solving unexpected problems in their business. Jason is also the author of a new book, Build for Tomorrow, which is an action plan for embracing change and adapting fast. As the host of the podcast, Build for Tomorrow, yes, the same name as the book, he's also a man who has lost his sense of taste. Believe it or not, he lost his sense of taste as a child. And so I am eager to ask him about his favorite restaurant. Does he even have one? And where is it? Please enjoy my interview with Jason Pfeiffer. Jason, how are you? I am well, how are you? Thank you for joining me on To Dine For The Podcast. Thanks for having me on To Dine For The Podcast. We did it. We, we got here. I know you had an incredibly busy fall, so this is a treat. I it's, it's a delight to talk to you. Yeah, it's been crazy. It's still crazy. You know, I'm sort of just acting on instinct at this point. I'm not Are thinking. you enjoying it? Are you enjoying the process of this tour or is it stressful? I am enjoying it. It took me a, a couple weeks, I think, to feel like I had the bandwidth to think about anything else, right? Like it, sometimes I find like a bellwether of how I'm doing is, can I listen to a podcast? Mm, Which is to say like, do I have the mental capacity to focus on somebody telling me something for a period of time? And uh, in the first couple of weeks of the book launch, the answer was no. Like I couldn't Mm -hmm. listen to a podcast. I just couldn't focus on anything. Now I, I generally can. The big challenge for me now is that I made so many commitments Mm-hmm. Over months, like I spent months making commitments, and now I'm mm-hmm. fulfilling all those commitments, and that mm-hmm. has me on the road all the time, and it eats all afternoon, every afternoon, and so there's very little time to like think about what's next or focus on longer, longer projects. So, anyway, so that's been challenging. How are you doing? 
I'm doing great, but it's important to remember this is a season, right? And this is yeah. part of what it takes to get a book launched, right? So <laughs> the, all of the prep right. work and all of the writing and this in a way is it's like running the marathon, right? It's the reward in a sense. Yeah. I always start, this is a deviation, but I always start the podcast by asking the guest, what is your favorite restaurant? If you could take me anywhere, where would you take me? That's kind of my signature on this podcast. But you, my friend, have one of the most unique stories because you have <laughs> lost your sense of taste as a yeah. child. Yeah. So I am absolutely fascinated to hear where you would choose as your favorite restaurant because you have a different set of criteria beyond just delicious food. Right. So I do not belong really on a podcast called To Dine For. Um, <laughs> my my recommendations about food should be discounted immediately by anyone who hears them. And, um, you know, this is to the great disappointment of my wife who loves food and uh, and who I cannot really share this with. But right. there is a benefit uh, if you are married to me, and that is that you can just order two things on the menu and I'll just have the one that you like less. So... <laughs> So uh, I love that. Yeah. Love so that. we, we do a lot of that. Like wherever we go, like my wife will just order two cocktails and then whichever one she's not into is the one I'll She's drink. like, you can have this one. Yeah. But I, one of the things though, that I, the, the question about your favorite restaurant very yeah, often has one. nothing right. to do with food because it has to do with location and ambiance and nostalgia and, and history. And, and sometimes it's about how a place makes you feel. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, do you have a place that you just like to hang out in? Yeah, I'll tell you I'll tell you two places. So number one is in the neighborhood we actually just moved away from. We we used to live in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Now we live in Kensington, Brooklyn, so we're not very far away. But this place that was down the street from us called Bricolage, which is Vietnamese, was just it's just fantastic. It's just like it's that perfect balance of it's it's a little elevated, but it's not too fancy to go out on a regular random night. The food is all really interesting. So for someone like me who can't really who can't not really can't at all pick up flavors. Yeah. I really like that a lot of it is experiential, you know, like like the like these Vietnamese crepes that come out and you have to sort of assemble them. It's a multi-step mm -hmm. process. Like I, I really like that. That's a lot of fun. And just visually it, it's wonderful. The setting is wonderful. So that's been that's been the place that for many years we've done Bricolage. Bricolage. Yes. B R I C O L A G E. Okay, and where's the second place? Um, so that's so that's that, and that that bricolage is like where we we go for celebrations and whatever. The day my book launched, my wife and my dad happened to be in town, and I uh, we all went to bricolage. So, but when I think of like the most fun place that I've ever gone to, I don't know if it still exists. I think it does. It was called um, Le Refuge du Fondu. So somebody attack me for my terrible pronunciation, but. <laughs> It's in Paris, and it is it is this kind of hole in the wall that I discovered in my 20s when I was in Paris with a friend. There are just two long tables, so you just sit next to strangers, and there's only one thing on the menu, which is fondue, and there's only one thing to drink, which is well, you have your choice between red and white wine, but either way, it comes in a baby bottle. So everyone <laughs> is sitting at this at these long tables. Right, these strangers at these long tables <laughs> eating fondue and drinking wine from baby bottles, and um, and it's just it was so it was so weird that you know you end up talking to everybody and it's and just comical. A and comical and yeah. just like the whole world is there, right? Like everybody, you know, it's just a really uh, it's a really diverse group of people who are there, and I have I have remembered that meal perhaps more than any other I've ever been to. Okay, two amazing examples. So yes, you belong on To Dine For The Podcast <laughs> because I think restaurants tell a story whether you have taste buds or not. Yeah. You know, what, what, you know, they always speak to what you notice. And obviously as a writer and as someone who enjoys learning and noticing the world, being, mm -hmm. in, an, being in a foreign country in a very strange environment like this <laughs> restaurant you mentioned in Paris spoke to you, right? It really yeah. spoke to you. Yeah, it Well, did. I literally could talk to you about your lack of taste for the entire podcast because I have so many questions, but yeah. can you promise me that we can have this conversation at a later date because okay, I am fascinated because I do want to talk about your incredible career and your book, Build for Tomorrow. Absolutely. People need to know, not only are you the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, but you are a podcaster yourself, you're mm -hmm. a writer, you're an author. When you look at all the things you do professionally, yeah. what feels the most 
Jason? Like, when do you feel like you're really in your element? Because those are a lot of varied things that kind of fall under the umbrella of what you have to do every day. Yeah, it's true. And and I have, it's funny, I have a lot. It's a really nice question. I have a, I have a lot of people who I, um, I take counsel from and, and a lot of them ask me on a regular basis, like, what's my plan or how, how do all these things fit together? And I'm trying to come up with a good answer to that. I have one, but it's long and blah, blah, blah. But to your, you know, to your question, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I think that we, I think no matter what it is that we do, we, it's worth finding something that just feels like a, a real pure expression of, it's like, if, if you were just allowed to do whatever thing you wanted, absent any business demands or concern about whether anybody cared, what or would money. that be? Or yeah. Mo- yeah. And then, and then, and then maybe, and then maybe go do that because what you'll find is that maybe it won't be the most financially successful thing that you do, but it'll be gratifying and it'll also drive other opportunities simply because you have given yourself this space to explore. So for me, that, that is really this podcast that I make called Build for Tomorrow. And the reason is because it is I've created a space for myself to go down the rabbit holes that I find the most fascinating. It's a show. It's not a conversation show. It is a deeply reported. I will just be curious about something. Like for example, the the episode that I'm working on right now. So I was on a I was on Gary Vaynerchuk's podcast a few weeks ago. I, I heard it. Oh, great. Um, yes. How do you think I did? I thought you did great. I've interviewed Gary as well, who's amazing and such a brilliant, brilliant mind, and has so much actionable advice. It's hard to get a word in edgewise because he thinks so fast, talks so fast, and he is so alpha. And I thought you did a really good job of holding your own and getting your point out. (laughs) So I would give you two thumbs up. Well, I appreciate that. So I appreciate that. So, you know, anybody go, go listen to me on Gary's show and see what you think. But I, I will tell you that I thought I did poorly. And, um, that's um, interesting. Why? Yeah. So, and this goes to this goes to this goes to this point that I'm I'm making, which I think people can relate to. So, stick with me here because this isn't just me talking about being on Gary Vaynerchuk's podcast. So, I thought I did poorly because I just wasn't as sharp as I usually am. I thought mm-hmm. that my stories didn't land well. I thought that I missed opportunities to be more actionable or more insightful. You know, I I like to think. I am very good at this of being being a, a guest on a show. Like it's a it's mm-hmm. a thing I do a lot, and I think mm-hmm. I'm good at it. And I just didn't think that I rose to the occasion on that podcast. And so, um, and I think you know part of that was factors I don't I don't know. Maybe I was tired that day, or I was thinking about too much. You're right that Gary can be really challenging because he's all over the place. I really mm-hmm. like Gary. I have a nice long relationship with Gary. I think he's brilliant, but he is not a linear thinker. He is everywhere. And so that actually makes talking to him kind of challenging. And so here's the point is that I wrapped up that show and then I'm sitting in my room because it was remote and I'm just sitting in my bedroom. And I thought, I really blew that. Like I had an opportunity to reach Gary's very large audience. That's a big sales opportunity for my book. And I don't think I showed up with like B minus material. And then I started kicking myself about it. And then I thought, you know what? But maybe I'm overthinking this and maybe it's just fine. And then I I really, I started pacing. I mean, it was like a crazy person. I've never done this, but I started pacing in my room. <laughs> and I was like, and I just started telling myself like verbally, like out loud, like a crazy person. I was just, it was fine. 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 But then I was like, but maybe it wasn't fine. You know, he asked me that question. I could have given a better. Anyway, and then I had to run across town because I was speaking to this organization. And I was like, I have to be focused for this. I can't be like, it was fine. It was fine in my head. And I couldn't get it out of my head. Mm-hmm. And I started to wonder, what? am I doing right now? Like what's, what's happening to Mm -hmm. me right now? Because if there is a name for this and if there, there are like people who study it, then it would be valuable to talk to them because I would Mm -hmm. like to understand this. Cause I bet that this is a thing that happens to other people. This kind of, it happens to me. Yeah. I I raise my hand. I'll do an interview and and it'll it'll be over and it went well, but Mm -hmm. I will literally spend an hour thinking, God, I did not ask the right question. Yeah. I could have done a better job. And it would be a really big, significant interview. And, right. and I discount the fact that I did that interview with a big name and that it it's going to have an impact. I mean, you did Gary Vaynerchuk's show. That is huge. I mean, that alone should be, you should feel good about. But the fact that you walked away feeling less than, what does that say? Well, so it's a great, great question and point that you make and something that the folks that I talked to about this came back to. So I'll tell you that I discovered that there is a term for this. And the term <laughs> is counterfactual thinking. 
That is the psychological term. Counterfactual thinking, which you could basically call what-if thinking. What you're doing is you're comparing a alternate reality against what actually happened. And you know, and and there's actually you divide there's there's upward counterfactual thinking, and there's downward counterfactual thinking. Most of what we do is upward counterfactual thinking, which is that we compare it against what could have been better. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, we compare it against what could have been worse, which is something people do, for example, if they survive a terrible accident or something, and then they'll spend all this time thinking about what what else could have happened, how could it have been worse. But but so we do this thing called counterfactual thinking, and I I, I started calling researchers who focus on counterfactual thinking because I wanted to understand what's happening. Is there a purpose to this, and how do we get over it? And um, and I, I mean, I can share with some of some of what I learned. But the reason I'm telling you about this is because, like, the only reason that I'm able to do that is because I created this podcast where I'm able to go down rabbit holes for myself. And mm. doing that, I will tell you, that podcast that I make, it has a great loyal audience for years. It doesn't make me very much money, like at all, mm. um, and it takes an enormous amount of time to make each episode because there are these produced things and I spend a lot of time research and I write a script and I perform it. So why on earth am I doing it? Yeah. Why are you doing it, Jason? I, so I ask myself that all the time. I think that it's important that we always ask, what is this for of everything right. that we do? Like, what is the purpose of this? We should have an answer and that answer can change. And for that podcast, the answer is two things. It is a IP factory. That's what I like to call it, which is to say that it creates these, this room for me to have interesting conversations with people about things that I wonder about. And then I can use that information in all sorts of other ways. So the book that I wrote, Build for Tomorrow, comes out of the podcast research that I did. Is They're very mm-hmm. different products, very, very different. But it started with me having access to all these interesting people asking things that I was curious about and then learning that stuff. And then I use it in a book. I use it in talks that I give. I use it in all sorts of ways. So it's an IP factory. And then number two, it's an opportunity magnet because when you put something out in the world that is just like a true expression of yourself, people find it and then they say, oh, I understand you and you are like me. And then they reach out to you. Mm-hmm. And, and I've, I've had a lot of great relationships with people and with organizations that have come out of exactly that. So that, that's why I do it. So that, that's why I think it's worth finding that thing that doesn't have a clear ROI, but it's just, it, it's such an a, expression of your core that you will, you will continue to, to do it and find value in it. You know, everyone that I have interviewed in some form or fashion through To Dine For, which are visionaries, creators, and dreamers, have either said it directly or said it subtly to lean into who you really are. Mm -hmm. And that has been an underlying theme of almost every single guest I've had. People always say, what is the commonality? I would say that's it. I've never actually spoken about this publicly. And that is... You just said that really beautifully. People need to rewind this and listen to what you just said, because if you can do that, and, and, and people will say, how do you become more yourself? Well, you walk towards what you're good at, what you like, what you have interest in, and do more of it. And that's basically, so when I asked you the question of all the professional things that you do, what is mostly you, you really distilled it down to to a deep curiosity and allowing yourself to explore that. Am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, I think that's right. And look, I, you know, the advice of like, do the thing you're passionate about or whatever, it, it sounds very pat and cliche. Exactly. And and so maybe it doesn't all sound all that satisfying because you might be listening to this and you're like, well, okay, but what? And, you know, I guess the answer is push yourself to take something that you enjoy doing and then make it valuable for others. Mm. So, so like, w- what does that look like? For me, that project is a podcast, right? It, it, it's it's not the only thing I do, but it is one of the things that I do. And and I have pushed myself to like learn how to do it in that medium. Now, I I enjoyed podcasts, but I didn't know how to make podcasts. So it turns out a good microphone costs like $60. And you can plug it into your computer. And if you have a Mac, then you have this free software called GarageBand. So now you you can record and edit. It's not that complicated. And then it's a matter of developing the skills. So when I when I listen back on those earlier episodes, I mean I sounded terrible. Like I was just I was awful. I was a terrible <laughs> host, right? And uh and it took it took a long time for me to develop it. But right. but I I just I think on very long time horizons. I, I think that if I'm gonna do something right now, it is not 
because there's going to be a payoff now. I'm going to figure out what the purpose of this is later, but I, first I got to get good at it. I, you know, I, Ryan Reynolds told me, which I know sounds like a flex, but I was interviewing him for the magazine. Ryan Reynolds told me that to be good at something, you have to be willing to be bad. Because I'm just going to say that clearly, you you were willing to to push through that discomfort, willing to be bad yeah. in order to get good. Yeah, that's right. And that's the se- that's the thing that separates people. Like being you, nobody's good at something at the very beginning. So exactly. that's not what separates people. What separates people is that is that some people are able to tolerate being bad long enough on their way yes. to being good. So it's like, yeah, okay, fine, be yourself, whatever. That's this sort of unsatisfying advice, but take it a step further. Figure out what of you could be valuable to others and then refine over time how you're delivering that value. That's when you have something. And look, you also could you you could enjoy bowling and you just go bowling every week. That's also totally fine. That's not valuable to others. But like, you know, if you want, if this is a thing that you're interested in is sort of creating something for yourself that that is going to drive value, maybe it's a thing that you make money off of, maybe it's a thing that introduces you to people and you make money another way, whatever it is, then you need to think about how do I take this thing that I'm passionate about and figure out how to turn it into some sort of product that others will care about but you're, it's gonna, it's going to be very bad at first and that's it's going to be bad fine. it's, it's going to be, be very bad, bad. oh you sh- my early days on television horrific <laughs> we'll have more on this conversation in just a minute but first thank you to our sponsors to dine for the podcast is brought to you by american national offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm or your life, you can count on your local American national agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American national companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. I live in Chicago, and right about now, the leaves are falling and so are the temperatures. This makes me want to grab a glass of red, find a fire pit, and a cozy sweater. If you are looking for a wine recommendation, may I suggest the 2018 Hanna Cabernet from Sonoma County. If you prefer white wine, the 2021 Hanna Chardonnay is a great option. This female-led winery offers absolutely delicious options for your fall table. Great pairing with more savory dishes or to share a bottle with friends. Hannah Winery brings the rich and unique terroir of Sonoma County right to your home in every glass. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. For anyone who's listening, you, I, I highly recommend following Jason. Thank because you. following him on Instagram, following him on social, because from an outsider, a layperson, just you know, uh, consuming your content, I think is the correct way to say that. I feel like one of your superpowers is your ability to learn something quickly in a quirky, interesting way, whether you're at a gas station, whether you're on the road, whether you're buying a house, all these different like life lessons that we all learn yeah. and turn it around, communicate it in such a way that the person like myself that's consuming your content also learns something. I feel like you know, from everything that I have known about you and seen, like, I feel like that's such a superpower of yours. And so I so enjoy it. I do. I so enjoy learning the lessons that you learn and your ability to impart them. I really appreciate that. So generous. I'll tell you two things about that for for anybody interested in kind of repeating that skill set. So number one is that I, I trace that ability back to my time at Men's Health. So I, I was an editor at Men's Health. It was my first national magazine job. I, I, I was 28 when I got that job. And I was there for maybe three years. And, you know, it's funny because I spent all three years bitching about how much I hated the kind of writing that we had to do at Men's Health because we had to do what's what, what's called in the business service journalism. Service journalism basically being, you know, advice. It's like, it's like you're writing for people who you are telling to do things. And, and right. So there would be a piece about 
how to eat better or whatever, right? And like, I'm going to go research how to do it. Then I'm going to tell people what to do. I, I, I hated that. I found this so uninteresting. I, at the time, I really, I wanted to write these like flowery features and profiles. And yet I got good at it because mm. I had to over three years. And I thought this is a skill that I cannot wait to never use again. And I, <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to, but then a very interesting thing happened, which was that years and years went by. And then I was in a, I was in a, in a other publication that now I'm running, Entrepreneur Magazine, and I was serving this audience of entrepreneurs, and I, and I really connected with them in a way that I didn't connect with the men's health audience. And I felt like I understood what they needed, and what they needed was what I needed. And I realized that when I told a story of somebody who did something interesting, that that story contained lessons for the average entrepreneur, but the person I was interviewing often wasn't able to articulate those lessons themselves because mm. they had just done it. Right. Yeah. And um. And I thought, what what I need to do is figure out how to basically tell a story about someone else that is really a story about the person reading the thing that 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 I've read. Right. So it's like if I interview Kate Sullivan and I write a story about Kate Sullivan, that is not really a story about Kate Sullivan. It has to be a story about the reader reading the story about Kate Sullivan. And what can they glean? What and can what they can learn? they get from it? And, yeah. and, and maybe, you know, maybe Kate, I mean, this bad, bad example, because you are very, you know, you, you are great at distilling things down, but let's say that, let's say that Kate is, is, you know, acts on instinct and made some really smart decisions, but can only half articulate how other people could follow. It's my job now to figure out how to stand in between these two things and make sure that I am bridging the insights that I found from someone else to the people who need those insights. Mm. And I, and I came up with this this way of writing, which I call bricks and mortar. And, and, and let me be clear that I, I am surely not the only person in the world who like does this. I, but this is, you know, sort of for my own journey, I figured it out for myself. I'm not saying I invented something new. But what I, what I started doing was, uh, was writing in what I call bricks and mortar. So bricks and mortar is this. The bricks are facts. So Kate Sullivan did this. She did this with her business. She figured this out, whatever it is. The mortar is me building a useful story by turning towards the reader and basically either translating what just happened or contextualizing what just happened. So a nice example is when I was interviewing Jimmy Fallon, I had asked him one of the, one of the things he was telling me about how he left Saturday Night Live and he tried to be a movie star, which he completely <laughs> failed at. And I, and I said, why, if somebody had asked you back then why you wanted to be a movie star, what would you have said? This is the interview when I was interviewing him. And he he paused and he was like, I don't know. I, I guess it was just it was just the path that people took after Saturday Night Live. And so he said that to me, and I quoted him in the magazine saying that. The next paragraph then was me, in which I wrote something like, it's not exactly because I don't have it in front of me, but it was something like, You want to hear what it sounds like to not inspire yourself or whatever. Four words right there. It's just the path, not your mm. path, not, you know, like not your journey, someone mm. else's path for someone else's purposes. Like that is right. Whatever I said. But what I was doing was I was taking this thing that he had talked about himself and I was turning towards the reader and saying, here's how it's relevant. And then that can get annoying if you do that too often. So you have to do it in the right places and you have to use them in a way in which they build upon themselves. So I'm not like always turning to the reader with a different lesson. I'm taking that whole story about Jimmy Fallon and I'm telling one story about it, one thing that the reader can use. And that's now how I've that's now how I write and it's how I think. I mean, even during this interview, right? Like I basically, anytime you ask me a question, I'll talk about myself for a little bit and then I'll try to turn it towards the listener and be like, but here's a lesson that you can have because people right. don't care about me. Who cares about me? You care about you and you should care about you a lot more than you care about me. So let me be here to serve you, right? Um, and right. Uh, so that's, like people want to learn. They want to learn. Yeah. yeah. They want to walk yeah. away inspired. They want to learn like they've, they've actually have something tangible. They can walk away and make their life better. I'm really curious because you've done, and this is, there's nothing false about this. You've done some name mm -hmm. dropping on this show, yeah. whether it's Ryan Reynolds or Jimmy Fallon, but this is your life. I mean, you interview right. this caliber of people. I mean, you are the editor in chief. I'm interested to know because at the beginning of your career, you started as a writer and now mm -hmm. you are interviewing some of the biggest names in entrepreneurship. How has your approach to interviewing these big names and these big voices changed, especially in the past five to 10 years? Oh, it, I mean, it's changed radically. It's funny. I, 
I, I recently, we, we just moved, my wife and I just moved. And so I, I was going through crap that was like stored in the basement and I had found all these old clips that I had held on to. And I found this interview that I did when I was in college with Trey Cool, who's the drummer from Green Day. And like Green okay. Day was my favorite band in college. Yeah. And, and I was looking at the interview, the questions that I asked him, right? And they were all, they were all these kind of standard, completely uninteresting questions that people ask people in bands, right? It's like, so you're coming to Florida. What do you think about Florida? Right? Like, what is what is he going to say about that? You know? And um, did you have them written out? Were you were you yes. were you nervous enough that you had to have them written down? Yes. And, and as soon as the person finishes, this is the number one mistake I think people make when they go out and yes. do an interview. They write them all down and they don't really listen. They 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 as soon as the person stops talking, they look to their list. The second question. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. right. That's yeah. that is that is the biggest mistake that people make because if you have a list of questions and you're not thinking about how you could follow up on what someone is talking about, you're not really even listening to them. You're just going down. A- Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. List. So that is exactly what I did, and that's what I did for many years with like every interview that I did. Now I go in with no questions. Um, really? None? N- none. Zero. I go in with an idea of where the conversation should start. Yes. And then I listen closely to what they say. Yes. And I am trying to find the thing that animates them. Like, mm. what is it that they think a lot about? What is the thing that they have found for themselves? And I will, I basically, I spend, let's say that I have an hour with a, with a, a, a very, very famous person. So here's how I structure it. I spend the first, and this is, I, I this is what I, it's a print, print product. I should, I should say, because if right. I was interviewing them for, um, TV is totally different. For TV yeah. would be totally different. Right. Yeah. Or even, even audio would be totally different because people mm-hmm. would have to listen to the whole thing. Yes. Um, but what I'm doing is I'm trying to get somewhere with them. Yes. So I spend, so I spend the first 15 minutes basically letting them deflate themselves because Let's say, let's just use Jimmy Fallon. I really, really liked him. I thought he was just lovely. So Jimmy, like almost everybody who you interview, Jimmy wants to please, right? Like he he's going to give you his time and he wants that time to be valuable. He wants you to like him. He wants, right? But also Jimmy has been asked the same questions over and over again mm-hmm. for years. So he he is he has a kind of comfort zone based on what is asked of him and the stories that he often tells. And that's where he's going to stay for a little bit. And I know that. Mm-hmm. So a kind of like a balloon, I just have to let him go like... <laughs> Right, just sort of like let it all out, right? Like just like let okay. the air out, right? So, right. So it doesn't matter what I ask him. I know that he's and maybe go stay into on some, script. They're, they're bio- feel, they need to feel safe, and they're kind of yeah. staying on script a little bit. Yeah, right. It needs to go into some kind of biographical stuff. Right. Um, but I'm going to find these little moments to sort of test where they are really contemplative, and to mm. show them that I am a different kind of interviewer than the people that they're used to. That I'm going to ask like these these introspective questions. I'm also going to share a lot about myself, which I don't think people often do. And it doesn't, the purpose that it serves is that if I'm going to ask Jimmy to tell me a story of a time that he messed up, I'm going to start with the story of when I messed up Mm -hmm. so that we feel like we're laying it, we're both laying it out on the table. And I want to see, I want to see what he engages with. And sometimes I'm going to ask him things and he's not going to have a lot of thoughtful answers on it because it's just not where his head goes. And sometimes I'm going to ask him something and he's going to pause and think about it. And share something and then I'm going to follow up on that. And that's what happened when I said, uh, asked him about w- w- if people asked, w- why are you trying to be a TV star like what, or movie star? What would the answer to that have been? And basically, I want to I want to get to a place where I have an insight 
into how they have fought their way into success, right? Like thought not, their way into success, not yes. thought. No, interesting. Thought. TH, because most people, in fact, almost everybody in the world is not going to host a late night talk show, right? right. Like, and, and also the way that Jimmy did it is not replicatable by anybody. Um, right, right. So that's not useful information. So you are interested, excuse me to cut you off, but you yeah. are interested mostly in, in getting to the heart of someone's mindset. Yes. I want to understand how they think and I want them to think in front of me. Ooh, and um, that's great. And the way that you do that is that you you actively ignore everything that they're used to talking about. Right. Mm. Uh, when I when I talked to Od- I, I interviewed Odell Beckham Jr. I didn't ask him a single question about football. I don't care about football. I told him it there at the beginning. I was like, I, I barely watch football. <laughs> right. So like, I'm not going to ask you about football. Oftentimes, I go into pe- to interview people, and I I just not even that familiar with their work. Norman Reedus. I did. We mm-hmm, did uh, from mm-hmm. The Walking Dead. Walking Dead. I have never watched an episode of The Walking Dead. <laughs> never. Me right? either. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't. And I did not in in, in preparation for the interview. Why? Because I'm not going to talk to him about The Walking Dead. I don't care about The Walking Dead. Right. <laughs> what I care about is that this is a guy who seems to have made a a very intentional decision to stand apart. To to right to to be this to be this guy. You know, like I I read other interviews and I see that he you know he talks about how he in his earlier career would, would refuse to compromise on anything and 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 he you know he's a weirdo he considers himself a weirdo and he likes being a weirdo and like you know he did, he never wanted to be in a position where someone told him that he couldn't be a weirdo and that is interesting to me like yeah. what 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 was that where did that come from how, when was that challenged how did he think through it and how has he find how has he found that valuable now if you just ask him that those questions, Pat, he'll give you stock answers. But if you spend like an hour and a half kind of talking through it in a really inquisitive way, one of the interview techniques that I found to be most valuable is to ask people theories. So mm-hmm. you would say, you know, it, it, you can't do it immediately, but you do it starting maybe like 20 something minutes into an interview where somebody's told you enough information that you can start to piece different parts of it together. And you say, uh, you know, Kate, it's really interesting that you you said that you don't like doing that thing over there. And I, I wonder if the reason is because actually of this thing that happened five years ago that you were telling me about. And I wonder if that shifted your perspective on something. And then you you kind of learned that this wasn't a really valuable way to operate. And so now when you're faced with that circumstance, you think whatever, right? Like I just sort of coming up with it on the fly. And the reason that I'm doing it, and again, I, I didn't make this up. I got this from a, I, I went, and when I was in college, I saw Ira Glass, the this yes. life guy, give a talk. And he was talking about doing this. And I started experimenting with it. And I and I found that it's it's really amazing because it forces people to think in front of you. Right now, they're not answering a question; they're considering a theory. And it doesn't matter if the theory is right or wrong because they now have to they now have to react to it. And and almost if you say something, if you say if you you if you put words in their mouth, like I'm getting the sense that you feel this way. If what you just said is incorrect and against what they believe, they have to clarify it because they they have to. And so, as you said, you're getting them to talk through and think in front of you, Mm -hmm. which gets to what your intention is, which is to get them talking and thinking and theorizing. Yeah. And then once they're thinking in front of you, you can engage. Yeah. You have to be exceptionally earnest. Right. Like, except mm-hmm. people often tell me at the end of interviews that it was like a therapy session. Right. Because it's a great compliment. Yeah, it sure is. And yeah. um, and and it's because I consciously stayed away from anything that they feel like they have to be on script about. Right. Mm-hmm. And the things that that people usually ask them. And I try to get to the thing that that probably is very meaningful to them and that nobody cares about. And that's where I want to be. Which guest impacted your life the most? I'm not going to ask you your favorite guest. I'm not going to ask who was the coolest celebrity you met. But of all the interviews you did, was there one that you learned so much that affected you personally and how you thought about the world or, or, or how you want to move through the world? Oh, I mean, that's probably a little too big for what are often one to two hour conversations with somebody. But I will tell you, you know, the ones that are the most impactful to me are the ones that lead to relationships because then I get to see a little bit more of what they're like. Chip Gaines is a great example. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I'd say of, of the people who I've who I've interviewed and who I've then kind of stayed in touch with, uh, the, the two 
most powerful examples are um, Chip Gaines and Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm -hmm. uh, but Chip Gaines, I have more direct contact with. And so it started at the very beginning. And, and Chip and I have talked about this since. Okay, so Chip was 11 minutes late to our okay. interview. And when he finally arrived, he started with a profuse, lengthy apology in which he talked about how everybody's time is valuable. And, and so he's really sorry. Like he just, he went on and on for like three minutes about like, he just sort of started pondering about the importance of time. And, you know, the funny thing is like 11 minutes in celebrity, 11 minutes late in celebrity interviews is on time, right? Like, <laughs> it you is. Know? It like, is. Yeah. Like I've had people be <laughs> like five hours late for interview. Yeah. I've had people, people like just not show up and then reschedule for next week. Like, yeah. And then when they show up, it's like, they're not even aware of it. Whereas Chip <laughs> was 11 minutes late, right? Like I am often more late than that to things. And, uh, uh, and then, and he was so profusely apologetic about it. And I, I, we ended that, we ended up talking about that for quite a while. And I was, yeah. you know, when, when he finally stopped talking, I was like, Chip, First, I told him, I was like, first of all, 11 minutes late is not really late in this circumstance. But like, number two, I just like, I really, really appreciate that that's the way that you think. And I that just says says a lot because to me- It's a, kindness. To, it's kindness. It's a, yes, it's kindness. And and I think that you really get to know somebody in the details. Like, it's like, it's mm -hmm. the little things that they focus on that really tell you about the big things. And we we just ended up having this really wonderful, like he he was willing and able to go with me in every direction. Um, mm -hmm. And he's just really thoughtful and, and earnest. And we just really hit it off. And then we stayed in touch by, by like Instagram DM. <laughs> and, and I, Chip is really interesting because he started, I guess I should say in case people don't know who that is. So Chip, Chip and Joanna Gaines, they were big, became famous um, on a show called Fixer Upper. And now mm -hmm. they have their own cable network called Magnolia and just like a whole constellation of businesses. So they're like in the home home renovation improvement space. Uh, and he and they're beloved, everybody. It's just crazy. So, you know, Chip is very interesting because he and he told me this. He was like, you know, he he used to just be a home builder. And then when he when he made started making in Waco, Texas. In he Waco, was Texas, like which a is true, where he still is. Yeah. It's a true like rags to riches. He's in Waco, Texas. He's an average guy. And then yeah. all of a sudden his, you know, his stock goes way up because of television. And he really yeah. struggled with that because he would mm -hmm. get home after a day's work on like a TV set. And he said, he said to me, he was like, and his back was not aching because he hadn't done physical labor all day. Mm -hmm. And to him, he had always equated hard work with feeling physically exhausted. So he would get home and he just, he would feel like he didn't do anything that day. And so then like very late at night, he would, he would go out, you know, he's got a ranch or whatever. He, you know, he would go out and kind of work with the animals and, and, and just do something until his back hurt. And then he would be able to go to bed. And he said, it was just that transition was very, very hard to him to think of hard work as something other than the one thing that he had always associated with it. And I can see in my interactions with him now, him grapple with that still. He is a very famous, successful person. But to him, the value of work is not in being famous. Like it, it, it's in it's intangible things. He he mm -hmm. seems to think in terms of like value is people and value is relationship building. And to watch him try to do that while now also being pulled in a million different directions. And to be clear, like Chip and I don't hang out a lot. I don't have a lot of insight into his life, but but we're in touch. We've been in touch enough that I feel like I just see that like living inside of him. And I find that fascinating because he said, he, we, last time we talked, he said, um, you know, there's that line that like, you know, people are like, don't let, don't, you know, you can't let fame ruin you. And um, he's like, what, what he came to realize was that actually, I think that when you, become more successful it reveals you like mm -hmm. it, it, it it like it reveals whatever was inside of you whether or not you whether you're a, a sort of callous and self-focused person or you're you're a person who's you know really focused on kind of doing well by others and uh, because because it's the, the stakes are higher and you have to you have to pick a side well it's interesting because you sit at a very unique position you have a bird's eye view yeah. of success across the board, whether it's entertainment, whether it's media, whether it's entrepreneurship from the from the, the most successful entrepreneurs out there. Mm -hmm. And there's a there's a saying that um, success takes you where character can often not sustain you. Mm. And in a different way, with a different idea, is that 
everyone wants to be successful, but are they able to handle the stress, the pressure, the more on more on more, because that itself does not deliver the quality of life that that so many people think comes with success. Yeah. Like they don't realize the back end of the mountain involves, like sometimes it's harder walking down the mountain than it is walking up the mountain from a muscle group standpoint. And mm-hmm. so I'm wondering how this journey as the editor-in-chief of, of Entrepreneur Magazine has changed your idea of success. Oh, well, so first... You know, I, I think it's really important. I mean, I like I like the way that you frame that in terms of my idea of success because I, I think one of the greatest mistakes people make is operating off of other people's definition yes. of success. Yes, because it's just it's not sustainable. One of the most memorable things somebody said to me related to that is my so my friend and she goes by Andy, but her byline is Andrea. Andrea Bartz is a, she's a novelist, and uh, her first two novels did did okay. And then her third novel hit the New York Times bestseller list because it became a Reese Witherspoon pick. Oh, wow. And so I asked her- What's it um, called? I think it was called We Were Never Here. I can't remember if that's the one that, yes, it was We Were Never Here. So um, I had asked Andrea, when when she hit the list, I, I, I dropped her a line. I was like, hey, can we, you know, like we've talked about every one of your books and, and I, you know, I'm really curious how you like felt writing the past books. And how you kept going to get the one that like hit the New York Times list, and when we when we when we talked, she said, you know, I from the very beginning she had consciously decided to define success for herself as success is that I get to I get to write another book, like that's mm-hmm. it, right? Like it's not making a list, it's not a certain amount of sales, it's like that I wrote a book and it was well received enough that I get to write another book. That's mm-hmm. success, and so as a result. She says that she really has has kind of stabilized herself against two high highs and two low lows, right? Yeah. And she was like, she was like, you know, as a result of this, like, we were never here here hit the bestseller list, but she had already written the next book, so now she doesn't even have to be caught in a freak out about like figuring out how to follow up this big hit. Like she already she already wrote the next one, and uh, anyway, so so to your you know to to your question about my my own trying to figure out the definition of success, I grapple with that a lot because I don't have like a specific goal. Like there's not a thing that I, there's not a bell to ring where I would ring it and it'd be like, aha, I'm done. Like I did it, you know? Instead, what I found for myself is that I feel like success to me looks like being able to continue to be better at the things that I'm doing and then figure out the opportunities that weren't obvious. Uh, like mm. growth is to me what success looks like. Um, mm. And ownership is to mm. me what success looks like. And ownership is really important to me because I- What do you mean by ownership? Yeah. So I, I, I right now, the thing that I am most known for is being editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, mm-hmm. but I don't own Entrepreneur Magazine. And so that's a problem, right? Like the, the problem is that is that I don't own the thing that I am most known for, which means that it's not really within my control. Now, mm. that I realize that's just part of the bargain and that's fine and I'm very happy at entrepreneur and I'm not, you know, anything that I say right now does not mean that I'm like ready to leave, but I am very mindful of I don't own it. So the question then becomes, well what 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 do and can I own? Like what are the things that I can build for myself so that going forward into the world I have full control over those things and therefore feel like I have more control over myself. Your book is called Build for Tomorrow, an action plan for embracing changes, adapting fast, and future-proofing your career. I feel like this is a great time as you're talking. I don't want to interrupt your thought because it's a good one. But I feel like in a way you're talking through right now how you are thinking about your career and future-proofing your career. What does that mean for people who don't know what that term is? Here's what I'm doing, and here's what everyone has to do. What you're hearing me work through right now is building the reality of change into what I'm doing right now, right? So, so the reality of change for me is that my like most valuable asset in terms of whatever the hell status and and, and access and people paying me to do things is that I hold this title, but I know that I don't hold this title forever, mm-hmm. and that I'm not in control entirely of when I might lose this title. Somebody, anybody could, I could be fired today, 
right? So as a result, I am building change into my calculation for what comes next, which is mm. to say that I'm thinking, what can I do now to anticipate that change and to mitigate its effects? That is what we all need to be doing. So wherever mm. you are, you have to be thinking, well, well, the thing that I'm doing now will not be the thing that I'm doing in 10 years, either exactly or maybe even broadly. And so what can I do now to anticipate that and to plan for it? And that means building new skills. That means building new relationships. That means being more open-minded about your understanding of yourself, making sure that you are clear, not just on the specific skills that you have, but the kind of core value asset that you have. Like, what are you to people, right? You're, you're not a project manager. You're a person who helps people achieve great things together. You're not in finance. You're you're someone who helps people grow whatever. I, you know, like this is going to be for for every individual person to decide. You're not a baker. You bring joy to people through food. Uh, right. And so like the more that you can define yourself in the specific way and then figure out all the new skills and directions and understandings of yourself, the more you can prepare for that change by getting somewhere before the change comes to you. Okay, I love this idea because every single person at, at least one point in their career thinks to themselves, yeah. should I do something else? Do I wanna be doing this in 10 years? I don't mm -hmm. know, I hate mm -hmm. this job, I wanna do something else. And maybe their thought stops there and then they think, well, what would I do? And then there isn't a depth of understanding of how you build for tomorrow. There mm -hmm. isn't a depth of understanding of how it's been done in the past. And I feel like what your book and please help me out here. Yeah. I feel like your book could potentially really help someone who has these questions think through in a more pointed way about how they can shape their future from, from career and beyond. Yeah. I, I think that people experience change as loss. And mm. so they see something change and they immediately think of the new, or rather they think of the thing that they already have that, 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 that they're comfortable with, that they're familiar with, and how that's going to be lost. And so grief. Well, you know, it's not grief so much as panic because mm. they don't they don't <laughs> grieve for it. But what they do is they start to extrapolate the loss. They say, yeah. well, because this has been lost, this other thing will be lost. And then because that other thing will be lost, this other thing will be lost, right? They, you start to you start to imagine, right? I, oh, well, because of this change at my company, I now will no longer be the person in charge of X. And because I'm not the person in charge of X, well, now all these other people aren't going to take me seriously anymore, which actually means that I'm going to start to lose my status in the company, which means that I'm not going to advance anymore, which means that I'm not going to develop the new skills that I need, which means that I'm ultimately going to lose my job and not be able to work anywhere ever again. Or that, like, yeah, that's what people do. That's yeah, what people right. do. It's panic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, a spiraling panic. So, what we need to do is we need to reframe the experience as gain, right? Like, it's not to discount loss, there will be loss, but. Every change comes with gain. It comes with benefit. It comes with unexpectedness. And and look, sometimes that that sometimes that's just uh, what's at the end of the journey. Sometimes it's what you create yourself. And we mm -hmm. we have to remember that like when there is change, we are not the only ones experiencing it. So when there's change in an industry at a company on a, on a global level, like a pandemic, well, guess what? Other people need new things too. And uh, they need someone to step up and help them. They need someone to be valuable. These are the moments in which we can step up and say, you know what, I, I have an idea of how I can be useful, of how I can grow right now. There's a reorg at your company. Well, great. Step up and be the person who can help others figure out how best to maximize that new opportunity. Like Whatever it is, if you can start to focus on the gain instead of the loss, you empower yourself to start moving through this process and figure out what the real value is for you on the other end of it. And I feel like also whenever I'm in a really dark place mm -hmm. and I feel stuck or I, I'm, I'm not really sure, I, I experience the panic that you're talking about, yeah. I always try to come to a place of gratitude because if mm -hmm. you have a chance to create something, to, to build something, you are in a position of power and agency of your own life. Mm -hmm. And it, that is denied to a lot of people. We live in an amazing country that allows us and we have the privilege of being able to create a new future. And it's something that many people take for granted, but there's always a different way. There's always a path forward in some way if we could really take a moment 
and and strategize. Yeah, I, I there really is always a way forward. Here's the question people ask themselves too often, and it's the wrong question. The question is, is this perfect? People will ask that of some new thing that they're experiencing or some new situation that they've put themselves in. Is this perfect? And uh, the problem is that I, you know, I can tell you the answer right now. And the answer is no, it's not, it's not perfect. And so if the measure of success is, is this perfect, if is the filter of whether or not something is worth pursuing is, is this perfect? Well, then the answer is no, and you're not going to do it every Mm. single time. Mm. So instead ask this question, is my new problem better than my old problem? Mm. Because with that framing, we are leaving open the possibility of problems. Problems by themselves do not negate value. Instead, we can just start measuring progress by whether or not we have better problems. I mean, if I'm thinking about the things that I'm grappling with in my career right now, well, the problems that I have right now are much better than the problems that I have had five years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, right, and 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 in that, I mean, you know, I just told you I'm grappling with this like, question of ownership or whatever. That that's fine. But you know, f- before entrepreneur, the problems that I would have had were how do I convince anybody that I have any value, uh, right? Or, you know, like, or if I get laid off, how am I going to stay in this shaky industry? Those are worse <laughs> problems than I have now. And and so I, like that's what we need to be building towards is basically how do we create better problems for ourselves? We will always be trying to solve problems. That's fine. That's literally that's just what it is. That's what every everybody who I interview, you know, we were talking about these famous people that I interview. Like they're all trying to solve problems for themselves. All it's you do not reach a level of success where then everything is fine, right? There, like right. there, it's just you don't. Nobody throws themselves a retirement party in the middle of the journey. So instead. The thing that you need to do is just recognize that progress is problems. They're just better problems. And and a better ability to solve them and, and panic less. You know, hopefully yeah. you're you're evolving to the point where you're not at like DEFCON 5 panic level, but you're able to just grow, as you said, and you're able to evolve and handle things better in life. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. As you, as we continue to grow, we will I mean, this is this is the reason why I push people to try. To, to think about this, like, what can you do right now that will future-proof yourself? Because look, if you if right now you're at a job and you're like, well, I don't know, I guess I'll take a class in something, it, that class may may yield a skill that is not going to be useful to you for five years, right? Um, right? But 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 it, but then it will be useful to you, and yes. it'll be useful in ways that you couldn't have anticipated. But so the more that we arm ourselves with new skills, with new ideas, with new connections, with new resources, the more useful we will be and the more prepared we will be to take advantage of new opportunities when they arise next. That's the reason to work now is because you will become better at solving the things that come up in the future. Jason, I have enjoyed this conversation so much. Thank you so much for your time, talent, energy. Uh, I could honestly talk to you for hours, but I know you're an extremely busy man. So thank you, thank you. If only we were at Bricolage. Um, (laughs) We must go. We must dine together next time I'm in New York City. I would absolutely love that. Let's do it. Thank you for having me on a show called To Dine For, even though I I can't taste a thing. Uh, We'll we'll talk about that another time. There's there's a first time for everything. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you, Jason. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to To Dine For the podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefor with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For the podcast, American National and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 